Hi, it's Mickey Dolans here. You're listening to Inspirado Projecto. Right, it is 5.04, it is 3.29, March 29th. Thank you, Mickey Dolans, for opening up this, this um, episode. I'm so excited to share this episode with you because you're going to hear um, of two very passionate visionaries. Two guys who just dive deeply into these rabbit holes. Um... Martin Schmidt, who is responsible for the restoration of the Golden State Theater. This all takes place before a Yachtly cruise show um, in Monterey at the Golden State Theater. And Martin Schmidt got together a group of people and I asked him, what, what would you call, you know, did you guys have a name? He said, no, I didn't have a name. I said, well, what would be a good name for everybody? And uh, he said, well, how's about we call it the Golden State Theater Restoration Society? And I said, that's a phenomenal name. So Martin Schmidt and Gary Parks were instrumental in getting this whole team together. He knows so much about the history of the Golden State Theater. He knows so much about the history about just the whole area um, and we're also going to talk to Cristo Rapolo, who is a nearby resident, and he has had many encounters with UFOs, which is his own rabbit hole. He's formed a really interesting relationship with these extraterrestrials, and the way I first heard about Cristo was the documentary The Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs. Now, there's a second one called The Man Who Sees UFOs that is on Vimeo Plus, which I still need to watch. And he's also shooting a third documentary. So um, he brought his cameraman along with, and um, I'll give you his name later on in the program. Um, he brought his cameraman along with and recorded some of, some of our, our interview. So that's an honor to know that I could possibly show up in this, in this uh, next documentary. So, um, all right. Well, what we're going to get to next is Cowboy. Cowboy is the production manager of the Golden State Theater. He's a phenomenal guy. He's very accommodating to me when I first got there and Yachtly Crew. We loved, we loved playing the Golden State Theater. I love everything about that theater, the vibe, everything about that, man. Just a good vibe. So what's interesting is, is that the interview that I conducted with Cristo was in the theater balcony. I believe it was room, I, I, I believe it was seat 217, I think. Uh, I'll reconfirm that. I'll see, but... Christo said that was the seat that he'd always sit in when he'd watch movies there at the at the Golden State Theater. So it's like, it, it's astounding. It's astounding to think that along this time, Christo had seen the building as it was getting restored. Meanwhile, Martin was doing the restoring of the building. 
<laughs> I mean, it's just, it's incredible. So, um, thank you, cowboy. If you, if you had not listened to my wild questions about the miniature Golden State Theater right there in the lobby, it would not have led to this extraordinary interview. So thank you. All right. Uh, without further ado, we're going to listen to my initial meeting with Cowboy, and he's going to tell me a little bit about the Golden State Theater. All right. Then we have something from Man Behind the Machine. He's got a question. All right. Uh, then we're into the very first part of Cristo Rapolo. Thanks for listening to Insprouter Projecto. Okay, so it was... All right, well, first of all, can you introduce yourself for the uh, at-home listeners? I'm Cowboy. I'm the production manager and technical director at Golden State Theater. I love it. So you're telling me about the sign here, and it was called the Golden State, and then they're worried about some bad weather, so they, they just took out the whole sign because it was too tall, right? Yeah, well, originally, this is what it was. 1926 is what it was. And then, oh! Um, so no, no big sign. Mm-hmm. And then, so... And then... I want to say this is probably 1931 or so. They added, um, at the end of the Depression, they added a, a giant sign and, you know, a big reopening, um, added this metal thing, which is, you can't, it's not on there. You can sort of see it in that picture. Um, and then there was a storm within a few years of that, and they made them um, cut the sign down. So what they did instead of... Oh, my gosh. Sometimes they just cut it in half, added it... Added <laughs> they a, just chopped yeah, it. Like, All right, let's, just, let's just splice it. Th- that's, that's the top of the building, right? And this thing goes... Oh, oh, 15, oh. 20 feet over the top of the building. Oh. So this is the top of the building. They just cut it Dude. flush with the top of the building, changed the name of the business to State Theater, uh, and this became the flagship for the State Theater Company. Um, and then years later when they restored it and it became um, changed hands, it was a United Artist building for a long time. Oh. A long, long time, United Artist Theater. Um, and then they changed the name back to Golden State Theater. God, that is awesome. How long did it take for the guy to build this little uh, miniature here? Oh, I don't know. I would How long has it been here for? Um, I I think he built this in 2006, so it was... It's it's been a while. Does he hang out here a lot? I'll text him. See if he he wants to come on down. That is so great. He texted me last night something about the organ. So is that the mayor in there in the projection booth that you were telling me about? Mm -hmm. That's a picture of him. Uh, I think it's the guy on the right is uh, Buck Russo. Oh, my God. That is so crazy when you think about that. The mayor is is. up there. He's running your movies. Yeah. You know, it's like... And then, yeah, the old, like I said, the old timers would, would oh um, tell me about how, like, their, their dad would be like, that's the mayor of town. Like, Frank would say, that's the mayor of town going up to change the... Yeah, he's running your movie. And then you said the city council meetings happened up there, too? Did oh, yeah, he meetings? would have... They called it... Oh the, the, the walls were green at the time, so he called it his green room office, and that's... Which is strange for theater folk to think, because green rooms really were for the... I don't know, uh, but it was a... That was what they called it, the green room office. Oh, my God. It's incredible. So, uh, so how long have you worked here? Um, I've been here, um, it'll be eight years in September. Yeah. Eight part, years. Part of the building now. It's hard to get rid of it now, hopefully. So I know, I know you were, you were, you know, you're reluctant to talk about any of the activities that go on here. However, I just got to ask this, you know, if you could just talk in general senses, how soon after you started working here, did you start noticing interesting, you know, paranormal activity? Um... Shortly after, and wow. I and I would say probably in waves of like, there. That's sort of why I say I don't like to talk about them because I feel like the more I have acknowledged their existence mm-hmm. and um, given energy towards that, the more they've given me, mm-hmm. and I think I kind of freaked myself out. So I've sort of like just sort of 
let that uh, backseat a little bit, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like any of the spirits are bad right. um, necessarily. Um, like, so you uh, can sense a vibe? Yeah, I think so. Happened? I think so. I think especially as you, like, um, they're sort of in three different spaces. There's like, and this is why I'm actually texting Martin because he was the one who told me about this. He said there were like six spirits here at some point and Whoa. tied to because they, they, call, they called it a medium right I, mm-hmm, that's during, mm-hmm. and, they, and they said there were six spirits that were tied to the theater three of them were like transient spirits they had no actually business being tied to the theater and three of them were ghosts that did have business there so the medium asked the three that, want, that weren't tied if they want to move on they moved on and the three that stayed oh. are supposedly the um, you know but, but I think as I've at least as I've interacted with them, it seems to be they're in three different spaces. There's kind of one that, that hangs out in the auditorium, and there's sort of one that's in the basement, and then there's one the projection booth. Um, wow. And I don't think so that the projection booth ghost is Buck Russo. I think it might be a different um, Wouldn't manager. it be interesting if, if it was? He's yeah. like, I'm so tied to this theater. I got to keep, <laughs> I got to stay in that projection room. Yeah. Well, he was actually the projectionist for like, there was like four theaters on Alvarado Street at that time, maybe even more throughout the the years but there was smaller this was always the biggest one but there were smaller movie houses um even older than this one the there's doors on the front of the theater um on the emergency exit that came from the monterey theater which is where the dali museum is now and uh um, dali museum yeah like salvador there's a dali museum here yeah, salvador dali how close uh very walkable um, uh, before you hit the water <laughs> um, so i could would i walk down this street here just yeah. walk straight down yeah Dude, I love Salvador Dali. Yeah, I was so- just looking. I, the, the bookstore is closed. It's closed right now. But I was looking through the window, and I was just looking at a Salvador Dali a coffee table book because wow. I've got a few at home. So I'm like yeah. Dali, you know. And then here you are, tell me about this. That was a the- that was a, a movie theater um, way back in the day, and uh, it was that one was built in 1904, and so we have the front doors from that old theater on our emergency exit. Wow, it's a neat hand me down from history. Man, and it just like the way that this like. It's like rocks. The way that this is built, it's like, it's, it's interesting. The way that you see like the, I mean, what looks like rubble, kind of like, you know, kind of like poking out a little bit. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's supposed to, um, it's supposed to be a Moorish castle. Oh. Um, the inside and out. That's the theme throughout the whole thing. Um, so I don't know if it is supposed to emulate stone or, or some sort of. Because we did see those seats upstairs too, which yeah, looked to like, you know, thrones or something. Like that. Yeah. Well. Um, I do have to run upstairs and okay. printouts now that okay. I feel like he's, um, but I'll be back around and I, I texted Martin to see if he's, you know, around. What's cool, he's, he cool. Might, he might come awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Wow. This is great. I'm in the, uh, grand, uh, the, uh, Golden State Theater now. Uh, he of course just explained to us what was going on and, uh, we'll be able to, I'll be able to interview Christoph upstairs. Um, gosh, he said that his friend, the reason why his friend moved out here is because of the documentary Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs. He said his friend moved out here because of that. Oh my gosh. This is the other thing too. This is the other extra thing, the other really cool thing too. He opened up underneath the stage the old pipe organ and he let me play it. I just play this old organ that's like a hundred years old. And he was showing me there were like these little, you know, you push the little little knobs down there and it opens up, opens up. 
the sound coming through. He said they used to, I mean, this is a theater, theater, 1920, my God. And so he said they used to play um, movies here. And then, of course, it was silent movies, you know, so then they would play the music along with it. And wow, 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 wow. Man, this vibe here, so good. Anyway, we will be back with more. Thanks for listening to Inspirato Projecto. Thanks, Brad. I'm man here. I wanted to ask you what you thought was the difference between special effects and CGI. I know there's a lot of talk about CGI. You just don't hear the word special effects. So what do you think the difference is? Thank you, man, behind the machine for leaving a voice message. By the way, any of you who want to, if you want to leave a voice message for me to play on here, remember, this is a participation. You are co-creating this experience with me. You might just be listening at this moment. However, there might be one moment where you go, ah, you know what? Time time for me to visit anchor.fm slash projecto. Time for me to visit anchor.fm slash projecto and click that voice message button and leave a crazy message on there. Tell me your dreams. Tell me your synchronicities, epiphanies, strange sightings, all that stuff. Fringe theories, dreams, all that stuff. You can put it right in there. Um, so this is Man Behind the Machine. Thank you, Man Behind the Machine. He's a frequent contributor to this. He's also got his own podcast filled with phenomenal AI stuff, filled with phenomenal information, cutting edge right on the fringe, baby, surfing right on the fringe. You know, that space, that space of liminality, it's right between, you know, like I always thought about this, like I thought about this, like with a black hole, there's the black hole, then there's the not black hole, and then there's that edge right on the edge, right before it becomes a black hole and right before. Before it becomes a non-black hole there's that there's that something that's going on with that edge there's something that's just not allowing the other side to touch the other side there's something that's going cutting right through there that's man behind the machine uh, special effects i can tell you this special effects from what i've been around special effects are other, otherwise known as practical effects which is um instead of doing well cgi is computer generated computer-generated image, which means, um, like Transformers, those are computer-generated images. Wouldn't it have been cool if they made them, if they actually did them with marionettes or something, or if they, um, you know, I don't know, something that was real, and then they could add some CGI on top of it later. Special effects is the difference between a, a, let's say, a real Yoda, puppet Yoda, versus a computer-generated Yoda. Something you can interact with right there on set. Um, that's why it's a big deal if you make horror films that are made with practical effects, with special effects, because what you're dealing with is something that's right there on set. Um, fake blood that's going to go and splat right at that moment when you need it to, rather than putting it into a computer and going, okay, computer, we need you to put those special effects in there right now. We want to shoot, we want to show someone, you know, beaming something out of their third eye. How do we do do that practically? Well, maybe you put a light bulb in there, you know, and you hide some fake flesh over it. So it looks like it's like glowing out of their forehead rather than going back in there with CGI. So 
Anyway, I just had to say that. Um, in case, in case that might that might mean something to you. All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Something that is not a special effect, okay? Something that is not CGI is this conversation right here, right now. Really big shoe with Cristo Rapolo. This man has seen so many UFOs, have, has had a whole life of seeing UFOs, of, of very interesting paranormal experiences. And it's fun because when you go down this rabbit hole trail, you get to see how one thing leads to another and leads to another. So without further ado, and certainly without further ado, don't. Um, here's Cristo Rapolo. Thank you for listening to Inspirato Projecto. Yeah. But it is very, very trippy up there, and there's a lot of UFOs up there. Yeah. My friend's dad had an experience up there where they were hunting a deer. Yeah. And they saw this deer, and they all lined up to, uh, to take the deer out. And as they were doing that, an orb moved right in front of them and knocked them all out. When they woke up, the deer was laying there, but it was like kind of in a, like a liquefied state it was all smushed up like it had been run over or something and they were all covered with some kind of white ash one of them died on the way to the hospital and the other two survived but they were like in the hospital with conditions that were like kind of like the flu or something for like months before they caught out yeah Sort of like so radiation exposure or some shit like you know maybe they were mining some mercury out of there and just zapped them with a little mercury ray or something you yeah. never know because those places like i said are super mineral rich yeah and that's also a place where i had a sighting up on the uh where the boy scout camp entrances that you go down the trail uh-huh. there's like a view place up there and we had a sighting up there too it's a really crazy crazy Jeez. place so there you go that's, awesome. that's one i haven't told anybody before that's so, cool. well, what are we going to do now, folks? I got to run down there and set up for this band. Thank you. Yeah. I just had to have nice you meet him. Great to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for find, finding a spot for us to, yeah. to, to record this. Yeah. So, where would you feel comfortable? Anywhere. Yeah, well, let's go up here. Or no. no, on top of here. That way we have the view. Oh. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Ooh, that's a beautiful view. Go this way then, and that way if you want to with the camera. Mm-hmm. We'll sit in this row. Yeah. How's that? Uh, I think actually used to sit in this seat all the time. Oh, this was your seat? Number one oh. Number one oh seven. Wow. So it's incredible. Yeah. So we're here with Christ. Is that how you pronounce the name, Cristo? Cristo, yeah. Cristo Rapolo. Yeah, yeah. Where, where are you? Where are you from? What's your ethnicity? Cleveland, Ohio. Oh. Yeah, and um, at age seven, I moved out here with my mom, and uh, we picked up in Monterey and kind of homesteaded with her brother for a long time, myself and my younger brother and my cousin, and we grew up in school and had the regular kind of, you know, childhood that most people have. But before I came to Monterey, you know, I had a slight encounter when I was a kid at a place called Benton Village in Cleveland, Ohio, which was in the first movie where, you know, a vehicle showed up and uh, an impression of Bowwinkle Moose came up a ladder and bit me on the nose. And I woke up the next day and my parents were arguing and 
Um, from that point on, it's just been kind of like a feature of my life. So that know? was basically the domino that started all of your other yeah. sightings? I, well, it was, you know, it was to me more like a dream, you know, than anything else. But when I woke up, it was real because my brother had uh, taken all the diapers out of a hamper and put them up all over the windows to keep whatever was coming in through the window out. So there was, you know, So that. he was aware of it too. Yeah. And, you know, my parents had a tumultuous kind of relationship from that point on. There was a lot of trouble after that event. And, um, yeah, then eventually my mom moved us, my brother and I. They divorced, and we moved out to California and settled here in Monterey. And, you know, like when you have a mom that's working all the time and kind of in transition, you know, you're going from one place to another. And so kids, when you're doing that kind of stuff, tend to get in a lot of mischief. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we liked to do was we liked to go camping a lot. You know, we'd, we'd just kind of take off and get out of town and go down the coast to Big Sur. And a lot of times down there, we would, you know, um, we'd have talks about, you know, what we thought was, was going to happen, you know, this and that, you know, typical kid shit. And um, I'm down there with some friends and we ran out of weed. We, we had no more pot left. So we were walking out of this campsite and we went up to this place that's called The View, which is right above this parking lot in Palo, Colorado. And um, it looks at this big mountain range and down the whole valley in, in Big Sur. And so we decided we had one joint left and we were going to go up to this view and just kind of stand there because we'd been, you know, <laughs> partying all weekend with these these girlfriends of ours and their brother and um, as we were coming up to the place where we were going to stand and smoke the pot it looked like there was like um, some kind of a helicopter or something that was coming up from the ridge that was directly in front of us and then simultaneously while we're looking at that and trying to f see what was coming up over the ridge uh, an orb, like the size of a basketball, a big red orb, started coming down the trail towards us. And it was, you know, like a flaming ball orb. Uh, my one friend, Jeff, he was kind of into science and stuff. He's like, it's got to be like, you know, um, ball lightning or something because, you know, it's like tectonic action going on here. And it I'm was like, coming towards you? Yeah. I'm like, bro, I don't and think... And he's there trying to analyze it and trying to right. like go, oh, you know, there's Because it's be coming down the trail, literally like a person was walking down the trail very slowly and deliberately, and there was six of us there. Two of the people were from out of town in um, Oregon. They brought a bunch of mushrooms down, so we'd been toasting on mushrooms too, which, coincidentally, I've done some research, and there is research to prove that that kind of opens doors. Oh, yeah. You know, with UFOs. And I didn't know it at the time, but it didn't hurt anything that that happened. So we're, we're looking at this thing and it's coming towards us. And I'm like, okay, this is getting pretty trippy. And it went over us real slowly and quietly and gently. And so we turned and the object that we couldn't see that we thought was a helicopter is coming up over this hill now has presented itself. And it's a huge like diamond shaped like cube thing but it's in a it's just completely surrounded and shrouded in light and it's turning and it's like there's an opening in the middle of it and so there's you know like six of us there and i'm like does everybody see this and we all are looking at it and we're all like yes we all see it and my cousin got super scared and him and my dog ran off 
And so Cheryl, my girlfriend, and these two people from Oregon, and her brother Jeff were all still standing there. And I'm like, why don't we just like kind of hold hands and just kind of look at this thing and say, look, you know, we're not dangerous. We see you. Do you see us? What's up? Right. And so we did that and we held hands and pretty much within a second or so after we kind of just settled down and we're holding, we're looking at this thing. Um, it felt like the ground just started heating up underneath us and this thing started pulsing. And that's like, this is like a jellyfish classically, but I didn't know it at that time what a jellyfish looked like or anything. And it started moving from the inside out. So it was opening up to us. And so you could see that it definitely was communicating. Oh yeah, it was, it was opening like an, I mean, like it had like a huge opening and you couldn't see the end of it on the inside. And so this thing is presenting itself to us and this electrical shock feeling came up my legs and everybody else's legs and it hit us so hard that we were all like huh <laughs> kind of you know yell out like that you know and i passed out and everybody else passed out too but just only for like a couple of seconds so we were down on the ground when we all woke up right and this thing was gone it was no longer there and I was standing up, and I, as I was pushing myself up to get off, off the ground, I reached down onto the ground, and the ground was warm. And then you could, and you could put your hand in the places where we were, and you know, just this a couple feet or a couple inches to the outside of that perimeter, and it was stone cold. So it was like you know, the it, everything was physically affected. And so we drove back to Monterey, and while we're driving back, this is in 1977, and it's a documented sighting that, you know, the sheriffs got reports of it, and these objects were seen moving around in Monterey. And so we went home, and, you know, it was like, it was like pre-cosmic trip, and sadly, the next day I got a phone call from uh, my friend's daughter, uh, Jeff's daughter, or sister, and her brother the next evening, had, he took his own life. So oh, from no. that point on, none of us ever talked about that sighting oh, again, man. right? You know, and it was like, I, when I made the first movie, I asked Cheryl, you know, if she I was going to ask you what their thoughts are ever since seeing your, your first documentary. She's just, you know, she knows about my research and what I do and everything, but you have to be kind of considerate of people mm-hmm. because, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times people think they're going to come to one of these sightings with me and it's just going to be, you know, like a party or something. And I tell them, you know, things can get pretty interesting when you do this. And if it's really happening, you'll know it because, you know, yeah, it's there'll, be a little un- there'll be a little uneasiness there. And you know, people that I've done sightings with 50 times have had that kind of reaction to certain things. Mostly when they get really close, Mm. you know, and you have one of these orbs coming near you, they pulse and they pulse this light thing. It's like they circle um, around each other, this pulsing thing. And um, when they do that, it disturbs the air. Mm. And if you're standing close to them, you can feel it in like almost like like pulses of wind or wave. I've been been to these 10 feet. 20 feet. The group of them came down by my house over in Monterey on Montecito um, prior to one of my big sightings. And they came down below this cloud bank that was like completely, you know, there was no sky view or anything like that. And they came down over my neighbor's driveway. 
And I was in my living room and I saw all of the, I had these shades that were hanging down. It's like a sliding glass door. And I saw this red light. I figured, well, maybe it's a cop in the driveway or something. And I opened it up and it was them. And there was five of them and they were directly about 10 feet above my deck and the, the neighbor's driveway. So you could really get a good look at these things. Really huh? good. No, they, and they're amorphous. They showed up to say hi. They're like, yeah, hey. they're amorphous. You know, they have this skin that is like um, a membrane and it's, um, it's able to change size quickly. And whatever is, what we discovered recently in the last podcast I did, we discovered that a lot of my um, footage can, you know, when they analyzed it and they really removed any artifacts and any digital noise or anything, almost all of the orbs have these giant cubes in them. And Whoa. now, you know, um, we're researching fission up at uh, Lang, you know, up at the research laboratory up in Berkeley and stuff, you know, where the accelerator is. The particle accelerator? Particle accelerator. And strangely enough, the fission reactor looks a whole lot like the orbs with the cube in it. Oh, interesting. It's a sphere with the cube I in it. I wonder where they learned that from, huh? Right? <laughs> you know, and, and I did more research because nine years before these pilots even saw any of the orbs pacing their planes or going to these military exercises nine years before i had a scientist from mofon not specifically but he's a physicist who did work with them at a government level for about 10 years he was on the last interview and he did all of the analysis on the video footage and you know tore it apart really hard he tore apart the video footage yeah not like you know i mean Oh, meaning just dissected it and yeah. like instead of put me under the microscope, you know, okay, but and he didn't really try to grill. debunk it, did he? Or did he? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh oh oh. I, I've insisted on that because you know I've had a lot of really famous, excuse me, <coughs> a lot of really famous UFO researchers like Tom DeLonge and Luis Alessandro mm -hmm. and all those people. They came up to a sighting, and oh, they they were with you. Oh, yeah, they came up. Yeah, of course. You know, they they know from what they saw that I delivered even before, you know, things kind of broke loose with the movie well, and stuff. So what, was, what were their thoughts? Like, because uh, we've, we've seen, you know, the Pentagon footage. Well, they we've wanted to come up and, and see what I did. So that so must have been interesting for them to see that themselves. Like, It was interesting for me because they thought it was just misidentified planes and what have you. And mm -hmm. I'm like, Tom, uh, that's not the case. And I know your, your pal's like a really famous cinematographer or whatever, but you don't bring a fixed lens to a UFO party, uh -huh. you bring a Zoom. And the reason is because when they present themselves, a lot of times they're mimicking. And some people don't understand that these things can come into an airspace and they're totally aware of how much air traffic is in the airspace, Whoa. right? So sometimes if they don't have enough members in the group to say like do a triangle, what have you, two of them will position themselves so they'll fly along with another aircraft to make it a point of light. That helps them open a vortex. Incredible. And, and while they're doing that, they can have things fly in and out of that without anybody even aware of it. So one of the things I've been trying to do recently um, that is going to be a little bit more challenging is to actually catch them close up doing that. And, you know, it would probably require being in an aircraft or something like that. But... There's a lot of stuff I want to do with my research that I just can't do because of 
you know, fiscal limitations or what have you. Well, something just popped in my brain. You probably already thought about this, but you know, with the way that a lot of these drones are so high tech, that might be interesting. Orbs do not like drones at all. Oh, and I don't like them in the airspace because they make a lot of noise, and even the quiet ones, Mm -hmm. um, they don't want to be scrutinized by any kind of a machine, and. when you do that, wow. you usually blow the sighting and they'll just shift back into the time corridor. What, what is it that you suppose, like, why do you suppose that they ha- have the machines? such a, well, like with, with, with the UFOs or, or the extraterrestrials, why do you suppose well, they have that you know, specific kind of there's a theory about, about in- extraterrestrial intelligence um, insisting on being the masters of their machines mm. and not the other way around. If you have a symbiotic relationship with something that you kind of quote unquote use as a machine, that's going to be a hell of a lot different than having an artificially intelligent machine. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. that kind of works with you. Because I've that's heard something some of these that UFOs you are powered by the, the by the mind. It, right. That, that's how they're powered. Well, when we're doing the communication, when I'm signaling with them, that's exactly what it is. I'll show them a position, and then they'll mimic it, so that I know that they're not aircraft. That's them. But they have to wait until everything kind of is clear and then the big one will present itself as an anchor point and then at least two of them will draw out these energy bands from the big one and that's how they open the vortex but we actually on the last podcast i unbeknownst to me one uh, chris the scientist actually found several frames of the vortex opening real incredible yeah and i mean it looks like what you would think it looks like because it segments um, what we perceive, you know, in visual, visual information. So it literally is almost like a tunnel. And, you know, it's not like an incidental or an artifact or anything. Chris is really hardcore about that. He won't use any kind of software like, you know, a Photoshop or anything. He's just using the raw basic tools in the computer so that there's no... You right, know, so you elim- can't be blamed for... Right, there's no rounding of edges or any of that stuff to treat or filters. He, he's like the real McCoy scientist, which was, again, really telling to me, here I am on the air the other day, and it's a real significant thing that I'm doing. It's the first time I think anybody, especially somebody like me, a field researcher, has said, look, I've waited for you guys to present all of your arguments. Now that you have, mm-hmm. okay, I just watched this show uh, called uh, Australian 60 Minutes, and lo and behold, your own pilots are talking about something they didn't talk about in 60 Minutes America, which is oh, these cubes interesting. in the sphere. And they're now seeing them flying along with them at 39,000 feet. The interesting thing about that is that I had that information for you nine years prior to this, which... Isn't that interesting You know, and they're talking about near misses and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, something about putting your boot on somebody's neck and saying, you are not important enough to be doing this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't choose to do this in the first place. These things came to me from time of being a kid till now and like it became more serious obviously now because i'm doing it all the time but that was their choice and so i my my response is you know when somebody says how do you know that what you're seeing is what you think it is and do you think it's what you think it is all the time and i'm like i don't waste my time first of all Mm -hmm. looking at anything that isn't what i think it is or what i know it to be and if i worry about 
opinions and you know that vibration and energy yeah. of the naysayers yeah i will be defeated from day one because they the, the, these orbs are super like respect demanding well i think the when, thing too is that a lot of these folks they're, they're not trying to form a relationship with no, these no. you are yeah. so that's why they can stand on the outside remember my end of the not, relationship though and I, I gotta stop you and say it is very i mean i'm like the you know, the pupil you know these things are like again i have no idea why they decided to start doing this stuff with me but you know it's gotten to all kinds of different levels i've seen different craft i've seen you know flying saucer proper flying saucers i've seen man-made flying saucers using their tech with our you know uh our, our oh so you can tell and, the difference for oh, sure definitely. i mean at this point i mean you did the, dope so the far man-made with... artificial ufos it looks like a battleship or something, you know. When you see them, that's dark gray metal colors, rivets, nuts and bolts, mm -hmm. glass dome, you know, glowing lights and uh, and beacons on the outside. That's for you know for some people who think that they're seeing an airplane. It's no big deal for a UFO to emanate some light to make anybody think that it's anything they wanted to. And also, just recently, an Air Force colonel. Uh, was talking publicly about a piece of footage that he saw that they had vetted, the actual Air Force had vetted it because it was so important to them for the pilots to understand there is footage of a what looks like a commercial aircraft mm -hmm. and it's flying along and then it stops for 13 minutes in dead air. It just sits there for 13 minutes before it starts going again. Oh, man. Right? So that's a classic example of what I'm talking about with the mimicking. And remember... And I've heard they hide themselves in clouds. Right. You know, they and try a to disc, like too, and... is really kind of like, if you know, if, if you took a plate and you went like this, it's a screen now. And if you're up in the air, right? Whoa. Astonishing. I know, I know, I know. I had to cut this short because this is so power-packed with so much information. These conversations with Martin Schmidt and Cristo Rapolo, I promise you, are going to continue. There are two more episodes that will that will contain these. However, if you notice, there was so much, so much power-packed information going on in there. So many details. By the way, um, the the awesome awesome camera operator who is um, in the theater recording a lot of this for for the for the third documentary with Cristo is camera operator Gianfranco Ruggiero and his son. Um, so he was, he was in there recording stuff. Um, now, what you're about to hear next is in fact a fun fact by Henry D. Horse. Then we're jumping right in with Martin Schmidt. With Martin Schmidt Oh my gosh, another exciting deep dive into passion, uh, mysteries. Because look at, both of these guys are dealing with mysteries here. They're putting on their detective hats and they're diving in. Just following their passions. So, uh, all right, let's, let's listen. Let's listen in. All right, I'll be back a little bit later. Thanks for listening to Inspirato Projecto. <clears throat> Ready?
Yoda was almost played by a monkey. According to the book, The Making of Star Wars by J.W. Rinsler, George Lucas originally planned for Yoda to be played by an adorable monkey wearing a mask and carrying a cane. Huh, what do you think of that? Stay tuned to Inspirato Projecto for more fun facts. I, when, when I first walked in, I was just astonished by like just the architecture and everything, and the whole history of this place. And um, so I, I said, you know, I was, Cowboy was kind of showing me around a little bit and um, showed me the, the miniature that you made out there. And he's like, oh, man, you really need to talk to my buddy Martin. Like, we call him, like, the local historian. Like, he just knows so much about this place. And um, do you want to find a place to... Sure, to let's go out in the lobby or right, mezzanine cool. or somewhere. Uh, I can give you a whole tour of the place if you like. Yeah, I would love Of course, you that. know, can't really convey visuals on a podcast, I guess. But Yeah, yeah. That's all right. So the name of my podcast is Inspirato Projecto, so I'll send you a link once it's cool. finished. Yep. Oh. Um, so I just want to look at your... Let's go take a look at your miniature for a second. Oh, good. The sock monkey guy. Do you make sock monkeys? I make sock monkeys. Oh, I love out. it. I'll show you my gallery at some point. Wait, how long have you been making sock monkeys? About 20 years. I love it, man. Oh, my God. Okay, just real quick here. Yeah. Hang on a sec. Oh, this is great. Sock monkeys. Yeah. There you go. Go ahead and scroll through uh, Oh, these are great. <laughs> That's great, Indiana Sock Monkey, Jones. and the golden banana. Yeah. Oh, you even got some extraterrestrials yep. in there. Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh, you must have such a blast making Another these mermaid. things. That There's is Elvis. great. Oh, I love it. You ain't nothing but a Sock Monkey. Sock Monkey's my co-pilot. Oh, my God, these are great. This is Leonardo da Vinci. I didn't actually make oh, a monkey yeah. like that. I did that in Photoshop. Oh, my God. did that in Photoshop, too. Man, these are great. The Sock Father. You have got such a... Now, have you heard of a real life Egyptian? Tron! Oh my god. That's right. Have you heard of a real life Egyptian pharaoh whose name is Akhenaten? Well, this is Sakhenaten. Oh, I love it. Sakhenaten. Oh my gosh. These are great. The glowing stuff on Tron Monkey is called electroluminescent wire. Oh, so that that is actually actually glowing. glowing, yes. Oh my god, that's great. These little guys are phenomenal. Look at a little wizard. Yep. Oh my gosh, caveman. Dude, Carmel Valley wanted a clown. You could totally make. I imagine these as trading cards. You could totally make a whole bunch of tra- the monkeys. No, that's the right. sock monkey you monkeys. Yes, the sock monkeys. I made mean, the. You know, they appeared here in 2016 for their 50th anniversary. I love it. Oh at my! Least, at least the the surviving ones did. Yeah. Um, um, Nesmith used to live in Carmel Valley. Whoa! Yeah, he passed away. As you probably know, he did. I was I was very fortunate to see their farewell tour. Oh, wow. The very last night that he was there, wow. dude, I was bawling my eyes out the whole night. The love in there, oh, everybody's oh, singing, yeah. you know, well, my wife and I, what can it mean? We're all singing <laughs> Davy Jones. We're like, oh, so yeah. good. Yeah, they did that here too. Uh, well, what happened was that Peter Tork and Mickey Dolans wanted to do the 50th anniversary tour. Nesmith wasn't terribly interested. So the other two got backup musicians and they went on the road. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the places they came. It was in 2016, and my wife and I made sure that we would be here that night. Oh, we yeah. Were. And the really cool thing is that since Nesmith only lived over the hill, 
It was just a short drive over here. He came and joined the other two on stage after the intermission. As a surprise? As a surprise. I love it. The only venue on the entire tour where the three of them were together oh on stage. Oh, my gosh. So what a treat that was. When I, when I saw that one before the Farewell Tour, I don't know, it must have been around 2016, they went to the... Um, Gosh, yeah, this was, the was not the farewell, farewell tour. It was a 50th anniversary tour. 50th anniversary, yeah. So I think when I went, I went to the 50th anniversary one, and I saw Peter had gotten sick during that thing, so Mike had sub- substituted for mm-hmm. a few of those. So that was, that was one of the ones that I saw. And then just recently I saw the farewell tour, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this could be the last time. Because I was talking, to, I was talking to Mickey's manager, and he goes, "Yeah, Mike had like two, tri- like tri- like a triple bypass or something really? oh, a goodness. few days before mm-hmm. or something." I mean, it was like really in close proximity. So you saw him just like he was he was just not the Mike you're used oh. to seeing. But it was just so beautiful to see those guys working together and mm-hmm. all the old footage. Yeah, I love that. Is that like so the Wicked Witch of the West? Yeah, something like that. And this is Frank and Sock. I love it. And down here I've got Count Sockula. Oh my gosh, these guys. You could totally make trading cards, I swear. These things are great. Is that like a boy, a Cub Scout? Yeah, a Cub Scout and an Eagle Scout up above here. And, uh, that's an oh, Eagle, Eagle Scout. Scout. Those were made as gifts. They were commissioned by a lady I know who has grandchildren. One's an Eagle Scout and one's a Cub Scout. Oh, my gosh. And so to give you an idea of the detail I put into these things, I asked the kid's mom to photograph his uniform in as much detail as possible, which she did, and she did these beautiful close-up shots of every one of the patches that he had earned. Oh, my god! And gosh. she told me the order in which he had earned them, and that no. is the order that no I put them on way. the sash. What the heck? I, did the, I laid that all in Photoshop, printed it on printable fabric, which is a thing. Oh, yeah. And then sewed that into the sash for the monkey to wear. Oh, my and gosh. And the uh, neckerchief ring was made on my 3D printer. Incredible. Man, you are so crafty. This is incredible. Thank you. Jeez, these little guys. There's Bob Marley. Ah. <laughs> Forest Ranger. Oh my god, I love it. Oh yeah. I normally stay Bad away monkey, from copyrighted. I normally stay away from copyrighted characters, but that was ordered by a dear, dear longtime friend of mine for her grandson. So Oh my god, uh, you gotta do it. You gotta. I mean, yeah, this just, is a science teacher. I love uh, this it. was a gift for a little girl who loves science. These were all ordered by various people. These are great. And so I made a textbook. Oh, yeah. That's all right. I made a textbook for him on the 3D printer. Oh my god. And made a printed a cover for it on a mailing label. Oh. And because he's a college professor, I made sure that his shirt clashes badly with his pants. Ah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> Very few people would get that detail. Oh my but. god, that's hilarious. So uh, Oh my gosh, the detail you uh, put into the these. Sheriff. Look Here's at that guy. A, now this this like a siren ordered, and a sailor, huh? Exactly. Yes, this was ordered by a friend of mine who was just moving onto a houseboat in Moss Landing with his wife. That's where they live full time now. Oh my God! And he said he wanted a mermaid and one other. And I said, "You mean like a pirate?" And he said, "No, I don't want a pirate." And I said, "Well, how about a sea captain?" He was, "Yeah, sold the oh old sea captain." Oh my gosh! Cap. And as soon as he said that, I could picture him with the beard and the braid on his. Yes. I mean, that would be a great like wedding cake uh, top, top right? yeah. with those two, right? Like, <laughs> hey, yep. look at us! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh, this is great. Look, that was ordered man. for a, a policeman who was recovering from surgery in the hospital. Oh, Nothing crime related, as far as I know. I love this, man. That you, you, these people order these little ninjas. That was for my grandson, who's into ninjas right now. <laughs> oh my god! One oh of my, my grandsons, and the other one, he wanted uh, a Lamborghini monkey, so I made a race driver for him. Oh my god! I had a different gallery. This, this is was great. this was ordered by a lady uh, last Christmas for her husband, who's a biker. Oh my god! I love it. Oh my. And this is a is welder. This a wel- I was yeah. just going to say, it looks like a his, welder. Next one shows his hood down. Oh, go. no way. That's great. So Boop. I made the hood of the 3D printer as well. Oh, my gosh, man. And speaking of the, These are the, incredible. Uh, the monkeys, monkeys, 
Um, yeah. I started making all their band instruments on the 3D printer, and they're like half assembled in a bin some, in my garage. But then, of course, you know, I had to do other things, and I put them on the back burner and never got back to it. But I wanted to set them all up, pose them on a stage, right? Build this little oh set, my take gosh. a photograph, and turn it into a poster, like one of the posters you saw up above. Oh, my gosh. So I, ha- I didn't do that in time for uh, to, to catch Mike while well, he was still alive, but... The cool yeah, thing is, Mickey's going to go back out there to left. honor to honor his oh. comrades. You know, he's going to go out there to, you know, in honor of those guys, which I just think is so great. That's wonderful. And I love how active he is. So, anyways, oh, and this is one of my favorites, a Parisian monkey. So here again, <laughs> bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. He's got his baguette. Baguette and the bottle of wine I made <laughs> on a 3D him. printer, and it's all about the details. Oh, I love it. Old socks, Chardonnay, <laughs> Carmel Valley. That's where you said Mike Nesmith was living, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Oh my gosh. I don't know exactly where it was, but it was somewhere in Carmel Valley. <clears throat> oh, my gosh. So that's what I do for fun. <laughs> that is great. And on the back of my card is the scan code for my YouTube channel. Oh, good. I'll check it out. I started you got your sock monkeys on your YouTube channel? That's what it's all about. How oh, to my gosh. I love it. I love it. So that's on the back. The sock monkey guy. Oh, my gosh. I've always loved sock monkeys. Oh, my God. So one of these days I'll have to do a video telling how I got into it. But Oh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I started it during quarantine when I was out of a job and I had time in my hands. And now that I'm working again, you know, there's precious little time to devote to YouTube anymore. But. Oh, my God. Anyways, so. So, yeah, how long did it take for you to build this miniature? In my spare time, about four or five years. Wow. Look at the detail, man. You are a master. Well, I built it for two reasons. I'm the one who started the the whole restoration Ah, effort. Yes. I want to hear you talk about that. Mm -hmm. Cowboy was telling me it was all thanks to you that you, 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 it was all because you guys want to keep this organ here, right? It started with that, didn't it? Well, actually, it started a little bit before that. The organ was one of the, was one of the tools, if you will, Mm -hmm. that we used to help it along. Uh, it is not the original organ, but it's the same model. It was built in 19... This theater opened in 1926. The organ that is now in it was built in 1928. It was mm. originally installed in the Parkside Theater in San Francisco. It came out of there in 1938, went into a church in Salinas, and stayed there for just over 50 years. Then the church sold it to get a different organ. It went into storage, and that's where I found it. Oh, my gosh. So that's a long story all You just itself. chanced upon this organ. Uh, I, was, I was doing research... Uh, to try to locate the original organ, which I found. Whoa! Last I knew, it still exists. It's in Colorado now. But uh, the original organ was removed from here in the 50s after rainwater leaked through the chambers on one side and damaged the pipework and the chest. So they sold it and pulled it. It hadn't been used in years. Um, So I was trying to locate the history of the original. And in the process of my doing that, of course, this is pre-internet, mind you. I started this whole adventure in 1988. Whoa. Long before the internet. So you and really had to be Long before this wide thing. access to the internet at any rate. Wow. So I spent a lot of time on the telephone and following up leads. This person says, no, I don't know. Call this person and so forth. So I finally managed to track down the original organ. But in the process, one of the people that I called told somebody else about me who told somebody else who put an item in the international newsletter of the American Theater Organ Society, which I had never heard of. If I had heard of that, I could have solved my problem with right, the phone call. Right. Right. So, yeah. guy that lived in Fresno at the time, he now is, he lives in Salinas, but he lived in Fresno. He was the owner of the organ that now is in this theater, oh and it was sitting gosh. in a warehouse because he had bought it when it came out of the church, and he was hoping to find a home for it, and he's an old theater enthusiast, too. So, he, he called me. He saw the item in the newsletter. Fortunately, I published my phone number, and he calls me out of the blue, told me about this instrument, and said, so, would you like to install it in the theater? I says, When? 
Oh well, my god. At the time this building was owned by United Artists Theaters. Okay. And I should give you a sort of timeline if you have the time of the whole mm. history of the theater anyway. Um, so we contacted them, and it was just used for movies. The chambers were empty, had been empty since 1954. And uh, so we contacted them and said, you know, we got this organ. The theater was built for it, you know, and it was because it accompanied silent films, that's what it did. And would you like to install it in the theater? And they kind of scratched their heads like, why would you want to put a pipe organ in a theater? Um, so, but the local manager, who had been manager of this place for many years, uh, he knew what that all meant. Yeah. And so he yeah. kicked it upstairs to the district manager who kicked it upstairs to corporate. And the man in the corporate office in Denver had been the manager of this theater in the 70s. Oh, my gosh, man. Uh, he, he had worked his way up. Little did you know. Little did I know. I had no Look idea. Look how the universe works. So huh? he made all the maneuvering necessary for it to happen. And a group of volunteers, including myself, I did most of the wiring on the instrument that needed to be done. Um, we started installing the instrument in, I think it was June of 1992, and we finished around September of 95. Incredible. Then we started showing silent films with a company on the organ, oh, cool. which is what it was built for, uh, and doing plain concerts um, to much acclaim and much enjoyment. And... Um, so we kept that up for several years, and then in 2004, the theater was sold to a private owner. It, it may have shown its last movie. The projectors are still up in the booth, but they're shoved off to the side. Mm. It would take a lot of work to set them up again. Well, the funny thing is, speaking of the projectors, Cowboy Those was telling me that was the mayor, right? He was, was he the really? mayor. Yeah, he said that was the mayor and the projectionist. Oh, it could be. So the, so the mayor of the town was also a projectionist, apparently. I don't know the, all of the projectionists. It's entirely possible, because it's been a small town, you know, for decades, century. Um, so it's entirely possible that that was the case at one point. I don't know all of the projectionists that were here. The only name I can remember was Buck Russo. Mm. And um, it's been so long, I can't even remember what years he was here. Um, anyway, so, but yeah, this is the original Vitaphone equipment. As you can see, the, the road, these are records that would play, it. and the, the disc was synchronized oh, oh, oh. with the projectors mechanically. you got to be kidding me. So, so, so the, there's a needle on that? Re the, mm -hmm. the record is playing this right. music. This, and was, this was early sound technology the before they put the soundtrack on the film. Whoa, man. It was, only, it was only in use for a few years. So they really had to sync that up. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, of course, the problem was that this medium was fragile, and so was the film, which was nitrate film in those days. And you know about nitrate film, right? No. It's highly flammable. Oh, my gosh. All the all and the, the light bulb is hot shooting through there. Uh huh. Oh it, well, God. it was an arc lamp. It was two carbon rods with this bright, hot arc going through it. Whoa. So, as you will see if you ever look at old pictures of projection booths, there are these metal shutters, big thick steel shutters over the projection ports, and there's all this cabling up here with fusible links in it. And if a fire started, this magazine, this film magazine, this stuff burned so fast, this was basically a bomb. All right, so if a fire started, it would immediately melt the link above the projector and then all the ports would slam shut. And the poor projectionists would be trapped inside. Oh my gosh! No way! This raging inferno, yeah. Did the projectionist, do you think the projectionist knew this going into it? He's like, okay, oh yeah. Oh yeah. you're going to be projectionist. You might end up dying up there in right. a fire. <laughs> it was common knowledge. <laughs> oh, jeez. And all of the storage. Um, uh, bins oh up there were steel. There was not a stick of wood in any projection booth, any fire-rated projection booth back in wow. those days. So that was the case up... I don't know exactly when they switched to nitrate. I think perhaps it was in the late 30s, early 40s, but I'm not really sure. Mm. You'd have to consult another historian about that. 
um, when I say, excuse me, from nitrate to what they call safety film, which is what they use now. Hmm. Um, anyhow, so uh, the Vitaphone process used a, a wax disc, an audio disc that was mechanically synchronized with the projector. They were experimenting with sound for many years before that, but the problem was always how to keep the two synchronized. Hmm. Uh, and then finally, uh, let's see, the, the Vitaphone process came along, I think it was 1927. Um, and uh, so <clears throat> it was the, the first one to mechanically synchronize, if I remember the history correctly. I'm not an authority on this. Uh, to mechanically synchronize the two. The problem was that the disc would occasionally become scratched. And, of oh. course, at some point the film would break and get spliced together and oh. lose a few frames. Oh, boy. Oh, so boy. So if you wanted to see a Vitaphone picture... You had to do it within like the first week or so that it was in the theater to get the best experience. Oh my gosh. Because after that, there'd be little glitches and oh the my sound gosh. and picture would get out of sync. It's incredible. And then it, that was only a couple of years lasted. Um, and then they came up with the sound on film process with the optical soundtrack on the film itself, which solved all those problems. Wow, it's incredible. Were you ever a projectionist? No, no, I never was. Uh, I did go out to see the booth in 1976. They had a 50th anniversary celebration of this theater because mm. it opened in 1926. And um, I went, and they had it was an open house. You could wander all over the theater. I made a big mistake. First place I went was the projection booth. The old Union Projections up there was such a wonderful guy, full of so many fascinating stories, one after the other. Oh, after my gosh. I spent the entire afternoon up there and never got to see the rest of the Oh, place. my gosh. It's incredible. <laughs> so I missed a few things. But um, anyhow, I made up for that later. But that happened. That 70, uh, um, 1976 50th year celebration happened right after United Artists, for economic reasons, was forced to triplex the house. They put walls in the balcony and made two tiny theaters up there with a tunnel between oh. them so the same projection booth could serve all three auditoriums. Oh. And we'll go up there later and I'll show you. You can still see some remnants of what it was like. Um, so they, uh, the local manager regretted that they had to do that, but he didn't have a choice. So he made sure that it was done gently so that it could possibly be undone at some indeterminate point in the future, never knowing whether or not if it would actually happen. Wow. So we're very fortunate. Um, in Merced, the Merced Theater there, which was designed by the same architects as this one, I'll tell you about the architects too, uh, opened about the same time. When they multiplexed that house, which I think was about the same time in the 70s, they did a much more thorough job. They completely gutted the entire auditorium to the concrete walls. Hmm destroyed all of the ornamentation. It was much more elaborate than this theater is. Oh, no. And they put four auditoriums in there. But, fortunately, the man who was manager there at the time went around and photographed in color, in detail, all of the auditorium. And he kept those photos for decades. Oh, my God. Finally, a few years ago, the city of Merced bought the place, and they restored it. And it's they all thanks to those photographs. All thanks to the photographs. Otherwise, there would be no, no record of what it looked like. Thank God he, he followed that inspiration at that moment, mm -hmm. man. Yep. You never know when We're, that stuff is going to come into play later on in life. Yeah. Or even if it's going to survive. Right. Yeah, you know, it's so ephemeral. What but so, yeah, it's because of that one man that they were able to restore that theater. And it was Whoa. much more elaborate than this one. This looks like a Moorish castle inside, but that one looked like an actual town with buildings down the sides that two sides were not symmetrical. And it had a blue sky overhead, same as this one. So cool. So I can tell you about the architects. Yeah. Um, their names were James and Merritt Reed, R-E-I-D. 
Uh, they got their start in Evansville, Indiana in 1878. Mm. The first building they designed there was the Willard Library, which is still there to this day. And they actually have a history center, all about Reapers there. I contacted them and got some information many years ago. Um, eventually, they were hired by a resident of Emmonsville whose name was Elisha Babcock to come out to the coast, to the west coast of San Diego, and design a hotel for him. That was what is now the Hotel Del Coronado. Opened in 1888, I believe it was. It was the first hotel in, I think it was the first hotel on the West Coast, possibly in the country, to feature electric lighting throughout. Oh, my gosh. They were very innovative for their we day. We played there once, and I loved that Did place. Really? And I yeah. heard that Frank L. Baum made the, the, the crowns uh, that are in this particular banquet room. Oh, Frank I didn't L. know Baum that. Frank L. wrote a lot of uh, Wizard of Oz yes, there. Yes, he was. The, okay, wow, okay. That's really cool. Yeah. That's so, yeah, the same architects designed this theater. Whoa. And then they moved from San Diego, they moved up the coast to San Francisco, and that's where they did the bulk of their work. They designed San Francisco's first skyscraper, which was the the home of the San Francisco Call newspaper, so it was called the Call Building. It's still there to this day, but it was given a facelift in the 60s, I think it was, so you wouldn't recognize it, but the structure underneath is still there. It survived the 1906 earthquake with almost no damage at all. Whoa. Uh, They designed lots of other theaters, and this was one of them. Uh, and the Merced Theater, and many, many others. And they designed uh, the residences of the Spreckles family, of Spreckles Sugar. Mm. Um, numerous other residences. Well, I have a whole binder of information on Reed Brothers. Wow. So, it, you know, collecting all this is the work of many, many years. Oh, yeah. And, and no small expense either. So the model here, I built it for two major reasons. One is because if you've looked at the front of the building as it exists today, you can see a lot of the ornamentation is missing. It was all chiseled off <coughs> probably in the 50s. Oh. Uh, I don't know exactly why, if the concrete was starting to spall and they wanted to take it off or if they were trying to modernize the place. And then if you look at the storefronts on ground level, you'll see that there are all these narrow arches today. That was done in the 1960s during urban renewal. Oh. We lost a lot of historic buildings around the country during that period. And... So they remodeled the ground floor, and uh, let's see, the, the original rectangular marquee had been replaced with a triangular one in the 50s sometime. But they remodeled the ground floor to the 60s aesthetic in the 60s, but they didn't touch the rest of the building, which probably is as well. So it's this weird mishmash of all these different architectural styles today. And I wanted people, I had scoured old photographs, which I laboriously collected. Unfortunately, the owner of this theater two owners ago stole my collection number oh no but i have copies of most of the photographs not all of them but most of them and which is fortunate they're in storage somewhere um the man who supplied me with those those photographs was a local historian named pat hathaway and he died of COVID early this year oh man and so his collection which still exists but it's in limbo i have no idea where it is they're trying to decide what to do with it, who to give it to. I think it's supposed to go to the uh, UC Berkeley Architectural Library or something. But it was a massive collection of over 80,000 images of history all over the peninsula. Whoa. It was an incredible resource. Whoa. So, Boy, wouldn't that be nice if they let you take a peek at that, huh? <laughs> so I have a lot of uh, copies of photographs over in his collection. Wow. There might be more, you know, but um, who knows? And you know, we lost a dear friend, too, so... Anyway, but the other reason I built this, the first, the first reason was so people could see what it looked like as clearly as I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the other reason, so they would tend to inspire them, hopefully, to get it restored. The other reason I built it was to serve as a guide for restorers. And so I made every effort to be as accurate as possible. 
okay, to get dimensions for the place. I did extensive measuring. I oh even climbed up on the roof of the building at the corners. Those are long, amazing, man. Um, so I had a long string. I mean, I tied a weight to the end. I climbed up to the roof, and I let the string down until the weight touched the ground. Then I put a piece of masking tape on it, marked ground level. And then I started pulling the string up until it reached various strategic points of interest, put a piece of tape on the string at that point, and wrote down what it was. So then I had this vertical oh my, measurement. Then oh I took gosh. the string home, laid it out in the driveway, and started measuring all these distances. So that's how I was able to make it accurate. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, so most of this ornamentation... Uh, is so made from intricate. cast resin. Oh. A friend and I, um, uh, his name is Gary Parks, who was instrumental in, in helping me with this. Uh, he's a commercial artist himself, and he did a lot of the sculpting. So he and I divided up the sculpting. We carved the original pieces in jeweler's wax. Then I made silicone molds of them and poured these copies in uh, castable resin. Oh my gosh, Martin, this is crazy how intricately detailed this is. I'd love to get in there with a the magnifying glass and look at some of this stuff. Well, I can help you there. Like, and what's interesting? Oh, you, you, you can open I this up? the key with me. Oh my God. I mean, like, the, 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 building this building and choosing to put these specific things mm -hmm. on the building you know, imagine being that architect. Well, actually, like, there's an interesting, there's an interesting detail about that too. I haven't got any, any hard evidence of this, but if you take a look, I've seen pictures of what they call the reredos. You know what that is? It's no. A, the, it's a piece behind an altar in a Catholic church that goes up the wall. So oh. it's like a back, back altar piece. Okay. Oh. Uh, the one in Carmel Mission looks very similar to this. Whoa. To the center section. So I'm pretty sure that Reed Brothers went around town looking at old buildings and went probably went to the mission, which would still be ruined in those days, uh, and probably saw the Rubredos out there behind the altar and copied parts of it. Wow. Uh, that's my theory. I don't have any proof wow. of that. I mean, it's, it's such a great theory. Like, I mean, just choosing... The specific, like the eagles and the, the specific things, the mm -hmm. way that they're specifically put that way. And then, and then to know that you're putting this stuff up, up, up here and, and to know that you're doing this for your own, well, obviously it looks great on the building. However, people on the ground floor cannot see that intricacy. You know, I mean, you know, so yeah. that's what's so cool to think that they that's chose true. to carve it so detailed despite whether anybody could actually see it up mm -hmm. close or not. You know, like right. that's like, that's pure art right there. Mm -mm -mm. Wow. I'm eating some Cracker Jacks right now. Mm. Wow. I heard this funny story told by Jimmy Fallon. Um, he was saying that, uh, he was hanging out with Jack Nicholson at like a Dodgers game or something. Jack Nicholson get some Cracker Jacks. He's like look, looking around in there. And he looks so disappointed. And Jimmy's like, what's the matter, Jack? He's like, oh, jeez. What's the matter, Jack? He's like, I remember when I was a boy and I'd get Cracker Jack. And in the bottom would be something metal. Like a tin whistle or a train. And uh, so every time I eat Cracker Jacks, I think about that because, like, what's this? A sticker of 
I mean, I might as well open it on camera. So we could both arrive at this. It says here, lift and peel. I'm ready to do it. Lift and peel. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. I said a drum roll, please. Oh, it looks like an explosion. Really, it looks like, like a, uh, hmm, like a blast, like a fire blast. So there you go. In my day, you got yourself a tin whistle. You got your, my day, you got yourself a tin whistle, not a fire blast sticker. My day, you got something metal like a little train. And take the train out there when you're playing in the woods. Make up your own train tracks. Chug-a-chug-a-choo-choo. -choo. I'm the nature train. Chug-a-chug-a-choo-choo. -choo. Why, hello there, Mr. Apple Tree. Hello there, Mr. Apple Tree. Have you settled your differences with Mr. Orange and his associates? Very happy to hear that. How are you doing, Mr. Banana Tree and Avocado Tree? Very nice. Hello, hello, Mrs. Blackberry's Bush. Looking ripe as ever. Looking ripe as ever. All right, folks. Thank you. Oh, before we go, I got to play this for you. I'm so excited. Here we go. Phil got this for me. Do you hear this? It's inside this box. Philly Ocean got this for me. What a sweetheart, huh? God, man. Got me this. I love this. You're never alone. You're never disconnected. You're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. Then you are set with a capital J, which you'll never forget till they cart you away. When you're a jet, you stay a jet. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a jet, you're this swinging this thing, little boy, you're a man, little man, you're a king. Oh, you're never alone, you're never disconnected. You're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. Then you are set with a capital J, which you'll never forget till they cart you away. When you're a jet, you stay a jet. Anyway, you get the point. You get the point. Thanks for listening, Tinsprato Projecto. Uh, there's more to come. Just more to come. And thank you, Mr. Rob Broski, the woodsman from Twin Peaks, for uh, seeing us out. Thank you. This is Robert from Twin Peaks, and you're listening to Inspirato Projecto. Got a light. It's a face palm, a face palm.
palm, a balm of calm, like an napalm bomb. It's a face palm, a face palm, crumbly malm of loamy alms. And how soon do you think you're to do it again? It's a face palm, a face palm. Here it come, alms playing Brahms and prom. And how soon do you think you're to do it again? And the horns from Guam, Guam to the cable comes. Are the Grom Rom diatoms glom in their moms? It's a face palm, a face palm. The book of psalms and rhymes and rhymes. And how soon do you think you'll do it again?